0: Section eight of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume Four by James Boswell. Section eight. These minute inconveniencies gave not the least disturbance to Johnson. He nobly said when I talked to him of the feeble, though shrill, outcry which had been raised. Sir, I consider myself as entrusted with a certain portion of truth. I have given my opinion sincerely. Let them show where they think me wrong. Footnote. Miss Burney gives an account of an attack made by Johnson at a dinner in Stratham, in June 1781 on Mr. Pepys, one of Mrs. Montague's steadiest abettors. Never before, she writes, have I seen Dr. Johnson speak with so much passion. Mr. Pepys, he cried in a voice the most enraged, I understand you are offended by my life of Lord Lyttelton. What is it you have to say against it? Come forth, man. Here I am, ready to answer any charge you can bring. After the quarrel had been carried even into the drawing-room, Mrs. Thrale, with great spirit and dignity, said that she should be very glad to hear no more of it. Everybody was silenced, and Dr. Johnson, after a pause, said, Well, madam, you shall hear no more of it, yet I will defend myself in every part and in every atom. Thursday morning Dr. Johnson went to town for some days, but not before Mrs. Thrale read him a very serious lecture upon giving way to such violence, which he bore with a patience and quietness that even more than made his peace with me. Two months later the quarrel was made up. Mr. Pepys had desired this meeting by way of a reconciliation, and Dr. Johnson now made amends for his former violence, as he advanced to him as soon as he came in, and holding out his hand to him, received him with cordiality he had never shown him before. Indeed he told me himself that he thought the better of Mr. Pepys for all that had passed. Miss Burney, in December, 1783, described the quarrel to Mr. Cambridge i never saw dr johnson really in a passion but then and dreadful indeed it was to see i wished myself away a thousand times it was a frightful scene he so red poor mr peeps so pale it was behaving ill to mrs thrale certainly to quarrel in her house yes but he never repeated it though he wished of all things to have gone through just such another scene with mrs montague and to refrain was an act of heroic forbearance She came to Stratton one morning, and I saw that he was dying to attack her. And how did Mrs. Montague herself behave? Very stately indeed. She turned from him very stiffly, and with a most distant air, and without even curtsying to him, and with a firm intention to keep to what she had publicly declared, that she would never speak to him more. However he went up to her himself, longing to begin, and very roughly said, Well, madam, what's become of your fine new house? I hear no more of it but how did she bear this why she was obliged to answer him and she soon grew so frightened as everybody does that she was as civil as ever he laughed heartily at this account but i told him dr johnson was now much softened he had acquainted me when i saw him last that he had written to her upon the death of mrs williams because she had allowed her something yearly which now ceased and i had a very kind answer from her said he well then sir cried i i hope peace now will be proclaimed why i am now said he come to that time when i wish all bitterness and animosity to be at an end end of footnote. while my friend is thus contemplated in the splendour derived from his last and perhaps most admirable work i introduce him with peculiar propriety as the correspondent of warren hastings a man whose regard reflects dignity even upon johnson a man the extent of whose abilities was equal to that of his power and who by those who are fortunate enough to know him in private life is admired for his literature and taste and beloved for the candour moderation and mildness of his character were i capable of paying a suitable tribute of admiration to him i should certainly not withhold it at a moment when it is not possible that i should be suspected of being an interested flatterer january seventeen ninety one boswell hastings trial has been dragging on for more than three years when the life of johnson was published it began in seventeen eighty eight and ended in seventeen ninety five but how weak would be my voice after that of the millions whom he governed his condescending and obliging compliance with my solicitation i with humble gratitude acknowledge and while by publishing his letter to me accompanying the valuable communication i do eminent honour to my great friend i shall entirely disregard any invidious suggestions that as i in some degree participate in the honour i have at the same time the gratification of my own vanity in view to james boswell esq park lane december second seventeen ninety sir i have been fortunately spared the troublesome suspense of a long search to which in performance of my promise i had devoted this morning by lighting upon the objects of it among the first papers that i laid my hands on my veneration for your great and good friend dr johnson and the pride or i hope something of a better sentiment which i indulged in possessing such memories of his good will towards me having induced me to bind them in a parcel containing other select papers and labelled with the titles appertaining to them they consist of but three letters which i believe were all that i ever received from dr johnson of these one which was written in quadruplicate under the different dates of its respective dispatches has already been made public but not for any communication of mine this however i have joined to the rest and have now the pleasure of sending them to you for the use to which you informed me it was your desire to destine them my promise was pledged with the condition that if the letters were found to contain anything which should render them improper for the public eye you would dispense with the performance of it You will have the goodness, I am sure, to pardon my recalling this stipulation to your recollection, as I should both appear negligent of that obligation which is always implied in an epistolary confidence. In the reservation of that right I have read them over with the most scrupulous attention, but have not seen in them the slightest cause on that ground to withhold them from you. But though not on that, yet on another ground, I own, I feel a little, yet but a little, reluctance to part with them i mean on that of my own credit which i fear will suffer by the information conveyed by them that i was early in the possession of such valuable instructions for the beneficial employment of the influence of my late station and as it may seem have so little availed myself of them whether i could if it were necessary defend myself against such an imputation it little concerns the world to know i look only to the effect which these relics may produce considered as evidences of the virtues of their author and believing that they will be found to display an uncommon warmth of private friendship and a mind ever attentive to the improvement and extension of useful knowledge and solicitous for the interests of mankind i can cheerfully submit to the little sacrifice of my own fame to contribute to the illustration of so great and venerable a character they cannot be better applied for that end than being entrusted to your hands Allow me, with this offering, to infer from it a proof of the very great esteem with which I have the honour to profess myself, Sir, your most obedient and most humble servant, Warren Hastings. P.S. At some future time, and when you have no further occasion for these papers, I should be obliged to you if you would return them. The last of the three letters thus graciously put into my hands, and which has already appeared in public, belongs to this year but I shall previously insert the first two in the order of their dates. They all together form a grand group in my biographical structure. To the Hon. Warren Hastings, Esquire. Sir, though I have had but little personal knowledge of you, I have had enough to make me wish for more, and though it be now a long time since I was honoured by your visit, I had too much pleasure from it to forget it. By those whom we delight to remember, we are unwilling to be forgotten and therefore i cannot omit this opportunity of reviving myself in your memory by a letter which you will receive from the hands of my friend mr chambers footnote afterwards sir robert chambers one of his majesty's judges in india boswell end of footnote a man whose purity of manners and vigour of mind are sufficient to make everything welcome that he brings that this is my only reason for writing will be too apparent by the uselessness of my letter to any other purpose i have no questions to ask not that i want curiosity after either the ancient or present state of regions in which have been seen all the power and splendour of wide extended empire and which as by some grant of natural superiority supply the rest of the world with almost all that pride desires and luxury enjoys but my knowledge of them is too scanty to furnish me with proper topics of inquiry i can only wish for information and hope that a mind comprehensive like yours will find leisure amidst the cares of your important station to inquire into many subjects of which the european world either thinks not at all or thinks with deficient intelligence and uncertain conjecture i shall hope that he who once intended to increase the learning of his country by the introduction of the persian language Will examine the nicety and traditions of the East, and that he will survey the wonders of its ancient edifices and trace the vestiges of its ruined cities, and that at his return we shall know the arts and opinions of a race of men from whom very little has been hitherto derived. Footnote: He conceived that the cultivation of Persian literature might, with advantage, be made a part of the liberal education of an English gentleman, and he drew up a plan with that view. It is said that the University of Oxford, in which Oriental learning had never, since the revival of letters, been wholly neglected, was to be the seat of the institution which he contemplated. End of footnote You, sir, have no need of being told by me how much may be added by your attention and patronage to experimental knowledge and natural history. There are arts of manufacture practised in the countries in which you preside. Which are yet very imperfectly known here, either to artificers or philosophers, or the natural productions, animate and inanimate. We have yet so little intelligence that our books are filled, I fear, with conjectures about things which an Indian peasant knows by his senses. Many of those things my first wish is to see, my second to know, by such accounts as a man like you will be able to give. As I am not skilled to ask proper questions, i have likewise no such access to great men as can enable me to send you any political information of the agitations of an unsettled government and the struggles of a feeble ministry care is doubtless taken to give you more exact accounts than i can obtain footnote lord north's feeble though it was it lasted eight years longer End of footnote. if you are inclined to interest yourself much in public transactions it is no misfortune to you to be so distant from them that literature is not forsaking us and that your favourite language is not neglected will appear from the book which i should have pleased myself more with sending if i could have presented it bound but time was wanting footnote jones persian grammar boswell it was published in 1771 end of footnote i beg however sir that you will accept it from a man very desirous of your regard and that, if you think me able to gratify you by anything more important, you will employ me. I am now going to take leave, perhaps a very long leave of my dear Mr. Chambers, that he is going to live where you govern, may justly alleviate the regret of parting and the hope of seeing him again and you again, which I am not willing to mingle with doubt, must at present comfort as it can, Sir, Your most humble servant, Sam Johnson, March the thirtieth seventeen seventy four to the same sir being informed that by the departure of a ship there is now an opportunity of writing to bengal i am unwilling to slip out of your memory by my own negligence and therefore take the liberty of reminding you of my existence by sending you a book which is not yet made public i have lately visited a region less remote and less illustrious than india which afforded some occasions for speculation What has occurred to me, I have put in the volume, of which I beg your acceptance. Men in your position seldom have presents totally disinterested. My book is received. Let me now make my request. There is, sir, somewhere within your government, a young adventurer, one Chauncey Lawrence, whose father is one of my oldest friends. Be pleased to show the young man what countenance is fit, whether he wants to be restrained by your authority, or encouraged by your favour. His father is now president of the College of Physicians, a man venerable for his knowledge and more venerable for his virtue. I wish you a prosperous government, a safe return, and a long enjoyment of plenty and tranquillity. I am, Sir, your most obedient and most humble servant, Sam Johnson, London, December twentieth seventeen seventy four. footnote Macaulay wrote of Hastings's answer to this letter. It is a remarkable circumstance that one of the letters of Hastings to Dr. Johnson bears a date a very few hours after the death of Nuncomar. While the whole settlement was in commotion, while a mighty and ancient priesthood were weeping over the remains of their chief, the conqueror in that deadly grapple sat down, with characteristic self-possession, to write about the tour to the Hebrides. Jones Persian grammar, and the history, traditions, Arts and Natural Productions of India. End of footnote. To the same, January ninth, seventeen eighty one. Sir, amidst the importance and multiplicity of affairs in which your great office engages you, I take the liberty of recalling your attention for a moment to literature, and will not prolong the interruption by an apology which your character makes needless, Mister Hall. A gentleman long known and long esteemed in the India House, after having translated Tasso, has undertaken Ariosto. How well he is qualified for his undertaking he has already shown. He is desirous, sir, of your favour in promoting his proposals, and flatters me by supposing that my testimony may advance his interest. It is a new thing, I think, for a clerk of the India House to translate poets. It is new for a governor of Bengal to patronise learning. That he may find his ingenuity rewarded, and that learning may flourish under your protection, it is the wish of, sir, your most humble servant, Sam Johnson. I wrote to him in February complaining of having been troubled by a recurrence of the perplexing question of liberty and necessity, and mentioning that I hope soon to meet him again in London. To James Boswell, Esquire, dear sir, I hoped you had got rid of all this hypocrisy of misery. What have you to do with liberty and necessity? Or what more than to hold your tongue about it? Do not doubt but I shall be most heartily glad to see you here again, for I love every part about you but your affectation of distress. I have at last finished my lives, and have laid up for you a load of copy, all out of order, so that it will amuse you a long time to set it right." Footnote copy is manuscript for printing." End of footnote. Come to me, my dear Bozzy, and let us be as happy as we can. We will go again to the Mitre and talk old times over. I am, dear sir, yours affectionately, Sam Johnson. March 14th, 1781. On Monday, March the 19th, I arrived in London, and on Tuesday the 20th met him in Fleet Street, walking, or rather indeed moving along for his particular march is thus described in a very just and picturesque manner, in a short life of him, published very soon after his death. Footnote. Published by Kearsley, with this well-chosen motto. From his cradle he was a scholar, and a ripe and good one. And to add greater honours to his age than a man could give him, he died fearing heaven. Shakespeare, Boswell. This quotation is a patched-up one from henry the eighth act four scene two the quotation in the text is found on page eighty nine of this life of johnson End of footnote. when he walked the streets with what the constant roll of his head and the concomitant motion of his body he appeared to make his way by that motion independent of his feet that he was often much stared at while he advanced in this manner may easily be believed but it was not safe to make sport of one so robust as he was Mr. Langton saw him one day, in a fit of absence, by a sudden start, drive the load off a porter's back, and walk forward briskly, without being conscious of what he had done. The porter was very angry, but stood still and eyed the huge figure with much earnestness, till he was satisfied that his wisest course was to be quiet and take up his burthen again. Our accidental meeting in the street after a long separation was a pleasing surprise to us both he stepped aside with me into falcon court and made kind inquiries about my family and as we were in a hurry going different ways i promised to call on him the next day he said he was engaged to go out in the morning early sir said i johnson why sir a london morning does not go with the sun i waited on him next evening and he gave me a great portion of his original manuscript of the lives of the poets which he had preserved for me i found on visiting his friend mr thrale that he was now very ill and had removed i suppose by the solicitation of mrs thrale to a house in grosvenor square footnote mr thrale had removed that is to say from his winter residence in the borough mrs piozzi has written opposite this passage in her copy of boswell spiteful again he went by direction of his physicians where they could easiest attend to him there was perhaps a good deal of truth in boswell's supposition for in seventeen seventy nine johnson had told her that he saw with indignation her despicable dread of living in the borough johnson had a room in the square but he says it is not half so convenient as Bolt court End of i was sorry to see him sadly changed in his appearance he told me i might now have the pleasure to see dr johnson drink wine again for he had lately returned to it when i mentioned this to johnson he said i drink it now sometimes but not socially at the first evening i was with him at thrale's i observed he poured a large quantity of it into a glass and swallowed it greedily everything about his character and manners was forcible and violent there never was any moderation many a day did he fast many a year did he refrain from wine but when he did eat it was voraciously when he did drink wine it was copiously he could practise abstinence but not temperance Mrs. Thrale and I had a dispute whether Shakespeare or Milton had drawn the most admirable picture of a man. Shakespeare makes Hamlet thus describe his father: See what grace was seated on this brow! Hyperion's curls, the front of Jove himself! An eye like Mars to threaten and command! A station like the Herald! Mercury new lighted on a heaven kissing hill! A combination and a form indeed! where every god did seem to set his seal to give the world assurance of a man. Milton thus portrays our first parent Adam, his fair large front and eye sublime declared, absolute rule and hyacinthian looks, round from his parted forelock manly hung, clustering but not beneath his shoulders broad. BOSWELL End of footnote. I was for Shakespeare, Mrs. Thrale for Milton. And after a fair hearing, Johnson decided for my opinion. I told him of one of Mr. Burke's playful sallies upon Dean Marley. I don't like the deanery of Ferns. It sounds so like a barren title. Grattan's uncle, Dean Marley, afterwards Bishop of Waterford, had a good deal of the humour of Swift. Once, when the footman was out of the way, he ordered the coachman to fetch some water from the well. To this the man objected that his business was to drive, not to run on errands. Well, then, said Marley, bring out the coat and four, set the pitcher inside, and drive it to the well, a service which was several times repeated, to the great amusement of the village. End of footnote. Dr. Heath should have it, said I. Johnson laughed, and, condescending to trifle in the same mode of conceit, suggested Dr. Moss. He said, Mrs. Montague has dropped me. Now, sir, there are people whom one should like very well to drop, but would not wish to be dropped by. Footnote: He left not faction, but of that was left. End of footnote. He certainly was vain in the society of ladies, and could make himself very agreeable to them when he chose it. Sir Joshua Reynolds agreed with me that he could. Mr Gibbon, with his usual sneer, controverted it, perhaps in resentment of Johnson's having talked with some disgust of his ugliness, which one would think a philosopher would not mind. Footnote. Boswell wrote of Gibbon, in 1779, he is an ugly, affected, disgusting fellow, and poisons our literary club to me. End of footnote. Dean Marley wittily observed, a lady may be vain when she can turn a wolf-dog into a lap-dog. End of section 8 Recording by Peter John Keeble, Nottingham, United Kingdom